everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast on the critically acclaimed network where you control the conversation. My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. But everybody calls you... People write in and call me Rockmeister McCool. Thank you. It's not something I've insisted upon, but it's happened. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, and, uh, yeah, this is the, uh, this is the podcast. You write in, you can write us at letters at critically acclaimed.net and we read your letters. We respond to your criticism. Mm. We answer your questions. We give you movie recommendations. We'll take, you know, on the spot assignments. Uh, you will basically an open book. So mm. throw it on out there. We don't have time to read everything, but we read as much as we possibly can, which is why the intro to this podcast is always very short. Whitney. Yes. Read the first letter. This comes from Anthony. Hi, Anthony. And this is in response to an episode of Cancel Too Soon. Okay. Uh, our podcast about short-lived TV shows. Uh, and it's, it's addressed to Greetings Custodians of the Hot Springs Hotel. Yes. We are the custodians. We found those sunglasses. <laughs> Where are my sunglasses? If you don't know what we're talking about. One of the first shows we ever reviewed on Cancel Too Soon. And if you go to like our Libsyn page, you can find this episode still. We reviewed on Cancel Too Soon, the podcast we reviewed TV shows less than one season or less. A uh, Skinamax series. Hmm. Uh, it was actually Showtime, but yeah. Yeah, it was when, back in the 90s. If you stayed up after 11, there would be naughty movies and TV shows well, on yeah, paid cable stations. A lot of soft core sacks. And, yeah, yeah. and one of them was a short-lived TV show that I found on DVD. And now it's massively out of print. Uh, but uh, it's called Hot Springs Hotel. And it is about the sexy comings and goings at a hotel. Hmm. And every episode began with someone walking like around the empty hotel saying something like, where are my sunglasses? And then you cut to someone wearing sunglasses and having sex, but yeah. those aren't their sunglasses. Uh, usually it was Randy, one mm-hmm. of the owners of the Hot Springs Hotel. Randy, man, don't, don't look, look now. now. He has his own theme song. Hot Springs <laughs> Hotel is a very weird show. We had a funny episode oh, talking it's a, about it. It's a terrible show. Oh, yeah. Please seek it out. <laughs> um, but anyway, greetings the custodians of the Hot Springs Hotel. I've been a fan of your Cancel Too Soon podcast for a while now and have especially enjoyed the episodes featuring shows that I watched during their initial broadcasts. That list includes Swamp Thing, Rubicon, Jekyll, The Bionic Woman Reboot, The Flash, The Master, Manimal, Wizards and Warriors, Police Squad, Voyagers, uh, Herbie the Love Bug, Cliffhangers, Gattaca 1980, Battlestar Galactica, Exo Man, and The Doctor Strange Pilot. Wow, you, so, were, you actually remember Doctor Strange when it came on. That's cool. Yeah, I don't know uh, anyone else who actually just saw and, that when it happened to be on TV. He says, yes, I'm old. <laughs> Older than either of you, either of you distinguished fellows. Well, <laughs> as old as I feel. Um, so I don't want to hear any more exaggerated talk about how you are old guys, okay, you whippersnappers? <laughs> There's one episode of yours that I didn't listen to in its entirety, even though I was familiar with the show, and that one was the show covering Parker Stevenson's scientific mystery series, Probe. Oh, yeah. Um Probe was a TV series about, uh, uh, like, the smartest man in the world who is also a jerk. Yeah. And he solved mysteries with uh, a a more, quote, ordinary person. Yeah, but he was basically, he was like Lex Luthor had his own series where he solved crimes. Like, he was a super scientist. And, and sort of as a, as a go-between inter- intermediary, he had a secretary. Yeah. Who, and they had actually very good rapport. And she was 
able to look at the world in a much more egalitarian light. She had a much more, like, stronger emotional intelligence, even though she can't memorize files the way he It was can. actually a pretty good show. Yeah, it was a pretty good show. Uh, I only caught the pilot and the second episode of that series back in the day, so I had to stop listening to your podcast after you, after you covered those stories. Being a huge Isaac Asimov fan, it was created by Isaac Asimov, I am determined to track down and watch the rest of the episodes before listening to the remainder of your insightful comments. Your coverage of Probe prompted me to write because it jogged my memory. When that show aired, a high school classmate of mine, whom I'll refer to as Cedric, really took to it. It wasn't just that the protagonist, Austin James, was really brainy and was held up as a hero, but because he was an outsider. Not the mm. too-cool-for-school kind, but the type who probably gets stuffed into lockers by jocks and have his lunch money stolen on a regular basis. I don't know if Cedric was bullied physically, I don't think he was, but he was definitely not one of the cool kids. A bit of a misfit or a social outcast, if I want to be brutally honest. Cedric got it into his head that the Austin James character justified his being outside the in-crowd. It was easy to see why he would identify with Asimov's creation. James was a self-made millionaire who built a business using his book smarts while seemingly placing no value on socializing sports or anything else that the, quote, cool kids at school enjoyed. Cedric felt that James's devotion to logic and reason made complete sense and that the character was a blueprint to follow. I pointed out to Cedric that the show was actually saying James was an incomplete person and that he needed the empathy instincts of the Ashley Crows, uh, Mickey Castle character, to solve the mysteries he encountered. Cedric would have none of it, arguing, <laughs> that, arguing that Mickey was just the audience surrogate for people who are not on James's level. I know there's been a great deal of discussion about how films like Joker or Natural Born Killers might glorify unhealthy or criminal behavior. Uh, Natural Born Killers more so that certain people might identify with the central characters despite their being murderers. Modeling yourself after someone like Austin James obviously pales in comparison, but I think it's another example of taking the wrong lesson from a piece of fiction. To me, it's pretty clear that Probe wants the audience to be amused by the super nerd that is Austin James, not emulate his loner lifestyle and focus solely on intellectual development. I'm not arguing in favor of spelling out lessons like the educational shows from kids from the 80s that had PSAs at the end. At the same time, I'm concerned by people like Cedric, who gravitate toward ideas that appeal to them, even though the point of the particular show or movie might be contrary to those ideas. Just wondering what your thought, what thoughts you gentlemen had on this subject. Uh, on a different note, I believe you mentioned a few times on Cancel Too Soon that you'll be covering Auto Man, which is another one-season show I caught in its original run. Is that one of your saving for a theme month? <laughs> <laughs> also wanted to say you guys are the awesomest of awesome. Your amazing rapport combined with the insight. Make Aww. your podcasts among the very best out there. Keep up your fabulous work. My best in yours, Anthony. Anthony, thank you uh, for those kind words. I really appreciate it. Uh, to answer your second question first, Auto Man is one of those shows we keep almost doing. Uh, and we're bound to get to it sooner than later, but no, I don't think we're saving that for a theme month per se. I, I don't think we have a particular theme month. We have nothing coming. In, nothing in line, but you know, no. we, we can we I've can bump to, Auto Man up. It's just one is like looming large over. I've us. been wanting to do, and this is tricky because the way other countries handle television isn't necessarily the way America does. So you know, what's been quote unquote canceled isn't necessarily the same in every country. Mm. Uh, but I've been wanting to do one, uh, like an anime theme month. Okay. Because there aren't a lot of, like, anime shows that fit the American mold of having been canceled, but there are enough, I think, to fit a month okay. that are prominent. So we'll probably do that at some point in the future if I can convince Whitney that it's okay. Maybe. Uh, if we can find, like, weird enough shows. There's definitely a few weird shows right. that I want to do. Um, but, uh, so Automan, only a matter of time. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you know what? We'll pair it back to back with Turbo Teen. Oh, 
we need to find Turbo if we can Team. Find I've turbo been looking team. for Turbo Team. Actually, a car one wouldn't be that bad. There's still plenty Just of car a, shows. A car we month. Yeah. I mean, Auto Man wasn't a car. He was like a Tron thing. Yeah. But uh, we'll figure it out. All we'll right. find something. Um, as for your second uh, or, or your first uh, uh, question about how... I think what it boils down to is... Art well, is kind of a tabula rasa. People yeah. will take what they want from it. Sometimes even if the text is very, very clear. Yeah. And like, I think that's the, uh, interesting. But yeah, sometimes it can be a negative thing. It can be a, a, one, one that I like to go to time and time again is David Fincher's film Fight Club. That film is so cool and so stylish that people only take the cool and stylish messages from it. Yeah. About how Tyler Durden is actually this really awesome character. Where Tyler Durden is actually the villain of the piece... And it it's decrying a certain kind of uh, masculine outbursts uh, that uh, men were experiencing in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. That there was a, a push in the 90s to for what at the time was called the sensitive new age guy to you know feel more feelings and be more sensitive. Right. To you know concern yourself with women's feelings and express yourself express your feelings in this non masculine sort of way. And this led to a backlash of men who felt emasculated by that philosophy and pushed a much more ultra-masculine viewpoint. You can see that in shows like Married with Children. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of like a pushback between those two. I, I think that's like, still or, going on today. As, it's, as it's society on, as a but, whole gets more yeah. feminist, more... Uh, uh, understanding more fe- well, overall, more, more female in general. Well, um, true, but like there's a there's certain men, and I think there's mm. not as many as it seems. But I hope that's mm. the case anyway. But who just get extra vocal about how sexist they want the world to be? They, yeah, they're they're yeah. used to a sexist viewpoint, and yeah. it, when they encounter a non-sexist viewpoint, they say, "Oh, that's that's." An upset of some sort of natural order in their brains. Yeah, exactly. Um, Even though it's wrong. I feel like Fight Club was trying to put a nail in that coffin, but instead it was a bunch of like dudes just prying the coffin open. Yeah. Um, I, I think something like Probe, yes, the idea is let's have a balance. A balance between the, the brain and the heart, which is what the two characters kind of represented. Sure. Um, but at the same time, the brain character was presented as being so capable and those who are, like, brainy in that sort of way might find some sort of hope in the fact that here's a character who, yes, was uh, presented as being successful because of their smarts. And it came in 1980, but there was a... You know, I grew up during a time when being an outsider was actually a coveted status. People wanted to be outsiders. The mm. mainstream was something that was to be rejected, at least in my circles. You know, yeah. we're, we're doing stuff like going to the Rocky Horror Picture Show and listening to weird music well, and going to cult movies. Well, I think even we, in the we, 90s, you'll get of... something like The X-Files is a good example mm. of this. It's another show where two diametrically opposed people solve mysteries, mm. but... The whole point of that show was they're the outsiders, but they were right about everything, and they were, and they wore cool clothes and had flashlights that you could see big lines of in the dark. It's like a David Fincher movie, and you're like, oh, I want those flashlights, and like, but like you wanted to be them because they were sexy and cool and right all the time, even if they were misunderstood. We romanticize these figures in our fiction. Sometimes I would say Mulder, perhaps Scully was not an outsider figure. She's Mulder, an outsider because she Scully, was with Mulder. Scully, Scully was the the balance to Mulder, but he, because he, she he was, was Mulder, he was the she, wild believer. She, and she was the skeptic. And she, it wasn't like she was going to cool parties and was going to have a career in politics. Her her connection to Mulder, <laughs> other government connect, agents. I think that's a bad example. To, but, I think uh, that's her connection to Mulder put uh, her on the outside. Increasingly mm-hmm. so as the series went on. Uh, may, maybe so, but um, I, I feel like. Finding a kind of outsider and learning to leave the mainstream and loving living outside of the mainstream was a big part of the ethos that I at least had growing up. Yeah. And the sort of rejection of anything, you know, like subverting the dominant paradigm. 
Yeah. I think- uh, and I feel mm-hmm. like, you know, we've, we've completely flipped on that. We've been trying to sort of push everything that was on the outside back into the center. Uh, that was never my goal. <laughs> I, I wanted to get everybody out of the center and everybody, you know, a lot of other nerds wanted to push the nerd stuff into the center. Um, I think if you push everybody was, out of the center, the mm-hmm. center... Becomes the center dis- the, becomes the eggs the, the, the exterior. The center dissipates. Uh, yeah, that, that, that was the idea. Yeah. Center, but I think the uh, other the, thing that, that comes out of this fiction, mm-hmm. though, is there's a certain nearsightedness mm-hmm. because a lot of people are absorbing this fiction only through their own level of perception, their own worldview, and a lot of people who would see something like, for example, probe and take something like that away from it haven't gone to the other end yet. They're only at the point where they feel like an outsider and mm-hmm. having someone who is cool and handsome and solves mysteries and is respected for their intelligence. That's great. But you mm-hmm. haven't reached the point <coughs> where you also need to acknowledge that there's more to life than that. A lot of people are just mm-hmm. searching for a certain amount of validation for who they are oh. right now. And they're not necessarily thinking about the grander mm-hmm. swath of their life's story mm-hmm. and the depth that's going to be required to become not just cool, mm-hmm. But a more mature, capable, wise mm. person. But but you're thinking like a grown up. I, no, that's my point. Yeah, uh, uh, a lot of people are thinking like young, and mm. you should probably think more like grown ups uh, more often. I, I, think. I think the whole reason a lot of the sort of the nerd types have, were pilloried and still are pilloried for so long is that they are so they're they're focused on their obsessions. They're single minded. Yeah, and they they kind of lose themselves. And there's actually we're living in a country where. Uh, life is set up where you can just sort of live your obsessions and not have to be well-rounded. And nerds have found complete ease in their areas of obsession and not and not this uh, parents' notion that they have to grow up and, and be better-rounded and sort of do this the sort of social constructs that the parents assume that they wanted all along. They have to, quote-unquote, grow out of it. Oh, not just grow out of it, but also, why don't you just go out and spend time with friends and do these sort of more traditional kid things? It's like, well, what if I'm content to be by myself building model airplanes? Mm-hmm. What if I make a living building model airplanes? What if all I ever want to do is talk to three other people about model airplanes and that's my bliss? And that's the that's the fantasy of the nerd lifestyle. Yeah, and uh, at some point along the way, that that changed, mm-hmm. where where the nerd was no longer seen as being a hero for uh, bearing the shared crucible of living on the outside. They became these sort of, for lack of a better term, social warriors who meant to make what they want. An inside thing. Mm-hmm. I, what I want should be cool for everybody. Yeah, yeah. And they and they were successful. Well, some the of them. Stu- the stu- model uh, airplanes haven't really maybe broken not, into yeah. the mainstream. The model way airplane, you're thinking yeah. Of, pe- people who can play the lute, you know, they're not on the mainstream. But yeah, uh, yeah the people who uh, were like reading comic books and playing video games, mm-hmm. like the media enthusiasts, adults who watched cartoons, yeah. like these were things that were seen as outside the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Now they're very, very much the mainstream. Mm-hmm. To the extent that now they're pushing other things outside the realm of cool. Well, and now the adult stuff is being kept out, which is kind of frustrating. To the point where you will like see YouTube videos of people who are just like 
The Joker is our culture. What oh, the God. fuck is I, this parasite? I saw that video. I saw that too. I wish <laughs> I hadn't. I really wish we hadn't like mm. it sort of extended that person's reach because mm. that's ridiculous. Oh, but he he's just one of many who are making videos like that. I know, that. but like he's, but he's, the point yeah. is there those people we, we get mm. those videos with those points of view because mm. there are enough people who are young and haven't you know, or, or are, not, are only looking within the sphere of or, what or, culture yeah, or, they've been exposed to already. Or, or not even young anymore, but still interested in what in previous generations would have been the interests of the young. Well, and, my point is this. You're interested in the stuff you know to be interested in already. And to some extent, we're all victims of that. We all, but, you know, there's stuff we already like, and we gravitate towards that. Hmm. Some people are more adventurous than others. But generally speaking, if there's something you like, you do it again. <laughs> I like this restaurant, and it's hmm. only a block from my house. You're probably going to eat there a lot. That doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean you should eat there all the time. That's my mm-hmm. point. So if some other if some other restaurant in your city is called the best restaurant in the city, the one that's closest to you that is convenient and all your friends work there isn't necessarily the best restaurant. It's just the one you like. It's the one mm-hmm. that's the center of your existence. And that's how I look at a lot of, like, you know, superhero movies, mm-hmm. any sort of stuff that has this mainstream click where, like, yeah, it's the stuff that's easy, most easily accessible. It takes up the most screens at your multiplex. There is an entire streaming service dedicated only to stuff from Disney, mm-hmm. the most popular entertainment provider in the country or the world, even. That doesn't make it the best and that doesn't necessarily make it the, the cultural center mm. of anything. It just means it's the most easily accessible. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's something that we just do. We, we mm. so, look for what's easy. We mm. look for what already relates to us and then we don't necessarily push or question it. Yeah. So we should I, question it more. I, I think Cedric uh, had, had something. I think mm-hmm. he definitely found a character he could kind of relate to and – yeah, if he's young and he's sort of emulating bad behavior, that's something we've all done. We, uh, yeah. Whether a fictional character or someone in our lives. Yeah. And uh, sh- surely he would eventually grow up and grow out of the, the bad behavior part. But at the very least, he found a hero who was an intellect in media. And I know sometimes finding someone you can relate to can be a boon. And in many people's cases, it can save their lives mm-hmm. uh, or, or just sort of open their minds to the fact that someone else is thinking that way. What is a great piece of literature, but an author extending their hand to you. And if you find the right author, you can kind of shake their hand and with so much media to choose from, there are heroes everywhere. One last thought on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when they, Said we should call this person Cedric. Mm-hmm. I kept expecting a big reveal, like at the end, like and that and that man's name was Elon Musk. <laughs> and you'd be like, oh, okay, well maybe this is an exception yeah. to that rule. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting point. But I think what it kind of boils down to is this: art is up for interpretation. People look for what they already want to see there. People are constantly mm-hmm. looking for validation, just in general, in our lives. It only makes sense, but mm. part of our job as a critic is to question yeah. and to encourage questioning because I think through questioning we reach greater understanding. Yeah, yeah, for let's, sure. Let's move on. Uh, here's a letter about Sonic the Hedgehog. Cool. This one comes from Cody the Toto Dial. Nice. <laughs> Hi, Cody the Toto Dial. Dear Bibbs and Whitney, Sonic's nemesis mm. has an unfortunate confusion surrounding his name. Oh, we talked about this in the last Critically Acclaimed. Because the character is named Dr. Robotnik, but you. You said in in previous iterations he was named Eggman. I think he was previously Dr. Robotnik and then he became Eggman. Yeah. Well, this is going to clear it up for us. Thank you. I hope this helps since I have to re-look up the answer from time to time just so that I understand it myself. Basically, in Japan, mm. he was referred to as Dr. Eggman. But in the English translation of the game, he's referred to as Dr. Evo Robotnik. Mm. All right. In 19... 19- 
1999, a game called Sonic Adventure came out where the English version referred to the Sonic's nemesis by both names of Robotnik and Eggman, while the following games referred to the big red oaf simply as Dr. Eggman. At some point, these names were combined with Eggman being a nickname, and thus Dr. Evo Eggman Robotnik was born. So Eggman is a nickname. Even though that was his, his original I can work with Japanese that. name, I yeah. can work with that. That's like again, that's like when Bruce Banner became mm. David Banner on the show. Yeah. So in the comics, they re- they said his middle name was David. Oh, there. Just you took go. the edge off of it, no, made it a little um, easier to. Or, or I guess a, a, a closer analogy was. Uh, there's a character in uh, the Street Fighter video games. The, the last yeah. bad guy uh, was referred to as M Bison. Yeah. Now, I always assumed it, it was supposed to be Monsieur Bisson, mm. and I was the only asshole who pronounced it that way. <laughs> Now, as it turns out, they actually flipped some names, and there was a character named Balrog, or maybe it's Balorg. Was it uh, Bal- Bal- no, it's Balrog. Balrog. There's, there's okay. the three main villains in the original Street Fighter II mm. game, M. Bison, mm. Sagat, Vega, and Balrog. And Balrog was supposed to be the name of the final boss. Mm-hmm. That was the M. Bison character, and M. Bison was the boxer character named after M. Tyson, Mike Tyson. Well, close. This is going to be Mike Bison. No, no. Uh, uh, M. Bison was Vega. Vega sounds like a generic bad guy name. So M. Bison was going to be Vega. Oh, okay. Uh, Vega was supposed to be Balrog. And Balrog was supposed to be Mike Bison. Mike Bison, okay. Because he was... So they they jumbled up more names. Yeah, the only one who wasn't jumbled up was Sagat. For whatever reason, Sagat was considered just fine. But yeah, for whatever reason... I got got that wrong. I thought it was just an inversion between the two. A lot of people think that. A lot of people think that. No, it's those three. Those three got messed up, and Mm. it just stuck. Like, they never fixed it, and... It's weird when you think about, like, how, like, ah, he's the greatest villain in the Mm. world, and his name is... Cow. Bison, yeah. yeah big old cow. <laughs> now it's raining bison on buffalo. That seems sort of right somehow. <laughs> anyway, more about Robotnik. Uh, interestingly, it's, uh, it sounds like the Japanese version of the Sonic games do not recognize the name Robotnik, and the confu- and to add to the confusion, either call him only Eggman or his name is left out and is a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> that said, I just wanted to say I enjoyed the Sonic movie. <laughs> It pleasantly surprised me. If they make a sequel, I'll see it opening weekend. Well, you know what? It was a big hit. It's one of those big commercial properties. They did a sequel tease. You'll get the sequel. Uh, Yeah, it was a really big smash. Yeah. Lastly, to contribute to the, quote, iconic animated character being transported to Earth conversation, Hmm. I think the main reason behind it is animation bias. A lot of people still see cartoons as only for kids, and they'll never give them a chance. Like Whitney said, I believe... uh, like Whitney said, I believe these uh, these people love action films and are supposed to validate their uh, – these animated anim- adaptations are supposed to justify their existence to customers. Similarly, comic book movies are treated the same. The comic book industry is struggling for readers, and yet their movies make millions if not billions of dollars. I hear so many people talk about how they want to see these iconic characters come to life and be real on the big screen, even though there's 80 years of comics to read. <laughs> For whatever reason, live action is treated like a Shakespearean stamp of authenticity, while the source media is hardly looked upon. I, I agree with that. I um, agree with uh, that, and that ticks uh, me off, and I want to talk about that, but if there's more to the letter. Yeah, no, I said, sorry for the long letter. I hope I shed some light and added to the conversation. Cody the Toto Dial. Thank you, Cody. Um, Stop apologizing mm-hmm. for long letters, everybody. Mm-hmm. A, they're not nearly as long as you think. B, we're fine with it, and if we have to, we'll trim them down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you're right. People do treat live action as if it has more inherent dignity than yeah, any well, other medium, and that's frustrating. I've, I remember remember when Fellowship of the Ring came out? Mm-hmm. You know, the Peter Jackson version? And everyone was like, well, not everyone, but mm-hmm. a lot of people were like, wow, I fi- I've read those books for so long. I finally get to see what it all looks like. 
Like there was a there were two no. movies already. <laughs> a, a, there <laughs> were movies. movies already. Yeah. A, there were animated movies. There was The Hobbit, yeah. Lord of the Rings, and, and Return, Return of the, of the King. King. Yeah. Yes, those last two had to cut a lot of stuff out, but they're actually pretty good. Um, uh, John Hurt plays the the uh, Aragorn. Uh, Aragorn, and he's and he's great in the Lord of the John Rings. Hurt. He does. Yeah, I don't yeah. think he's in the sequel, but yeah. Mm. Um, no, they're really good. Like mm. you should see those movies. They're they're fun, and there's stuff I like about them even more than live action movies. There's all stuff about the live action movies I like more than them, but mm. they're good stuff. But regardless. Just because it's in live action doesn't mean that's the real version. It's yeah, not like they went yeah, yeah. to Middle Earth and did well, a documentary. That's just what they mm, think it should look like. Eventually, they're going to be remade. Maybe mm. not soon. They're doing a TV series, which I think is a, like a an, like a side thing. Mm. But like, it's only a matter of time before someone says, let's remake them. And they will. Mm. And they'll look a little different. And that'll be fine too, but however they are when you read them, that's also real. Yeah. However, these things are in comic books, that's just as real. Mm. If anything, that's, it's that's, more real because there's more of, the, of them yeah. and there's more character development and there's more weirdness. That's one of the things I, I that kind of got under my skin about uh, the first Avengers team up movie. Mm. Uh, it's like we're going to put all these characters in a movie. Great, what are you going to do with them? Uh, the same thing that's in the comics. Really, nothing different. If I could just open a comic and get that same thing. Yeah. He gets stuck in a plane engine. Yeah, here he's get stuck in two plane engines. You know, the comic. <laughs> he's done that already. I've seen that. Yeah. Um, but I, I also want to... It's not just uh, animation bias, although that definitely exists. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little frustrating and, we're definitely, and it's definitely falling away, but it's still there. Uh, there's something that I... As a film critic, this is a weird thing for me to bring up, but I think there is a bias for cinema that I would like to fight against. Mm. This idea that a feature film is required to validate a different art form. Yeah. Uh, I get this a lot, you know, people for, who are fans of comic books. You hear this most frequently in adaptations of video games, speaking of Sonic the Hedgehog. Oh, I have a different opinion uh, yeah, on this, but I'll let you... That, that somehow a feature film, which reaches a different audience than a video game audience, is somehow going to lend credence and validation and recognition to the fans of the video games. Mm. Now, if you know if you pay attention to how much money and video games make and how many people play these video games, often it outstrips feature films. Yeah. More people buy these games than watch the movies. See the, the A-list titles yeah. definitely. The games don't need movies. <laughs> movies are not going to give anything to a game. It's not going to give anything to a comic book. I think that the Which sort is of, to say, and I mean, we mean even fiscally, because not again, even just fiscally, again, well, even fiscally, yeah. comics are not selling that well right now. Yeah, I mean, some of them are doing okay, but like as an industry, it's nowhere near as healthy as it was in the '90s mm. when the movies sucked. <laughs> and some would argue the comics sucked. Well, some um, of them did. Some of them always do. Yeah. Some of them are always really good. <laughs> remember Wetworks or Cyberforce. Or any of the Image comics of the 90s? Some of the Image comics were good. The Max was good. The Max was good. Savage Dragon was good. Did, uh, yeah, that's kind of it. <laughs> Savage Dragon was really, really fun. I like Savage Dragon. Yeah, I'm not going to give you... I, I even read Wildcats. I, I, even at the time, I hated it. It was not well written. The art <laughs> was so good in a lot of those. Yeah, a lot the, of them were not well written. The art was really, really good. That's the only reason I collected those Wildcats. Well, and and some would argue that that's valid in and of itself. It's yeah. a visual medium. But um, but anyway, you know, you you, you hmm. raise so the point. I, but, but I think I want to fight against this idea that a film is a stamp of approval. That is that it's the most important facet of a character or of a story, or it's that it is the ultimate storytelling medium. I agree to an extent. Mm-hmm. I do want to say, in terms of video games, my point of view is things maybe a bit more nuanced. Mm-hmm. Um, 
video games have been treated very badly by movies. Uh, there's actually a lot of great vid- movies inspired by the idea of video games, mm. like legitimately really, really good movies that are like use video games to tell a story, like The Last Starfighter yeah, or, um, or War Games. Or yeah. War Games is a great example. Cloak and Dagger is really, really good. Some people really love Tron Legacy. That's another example. A mm. lot of movies use video game storytelling as an inspiration for the way that they tell their cinematic stories. Everything from the checkpoint system of Run, Lola, Run to the overall metaphor of having to prove yourself mm. better than everyone your lover has ever dated in order to keep dating mm. them in Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. To hell, uh, Sam Mendes has gone on record saying the overall look and feel of 1917 mm-hmm. was significantly inspired by watching his kids play Red Dead Redemption. All right. Yeah, All right. So. These, so these things have interest. But when it comes to act- time to actually adapt a game, movies have done video games dirty a lot. There have been mm-hmm. a lot of lazy, bad adaptations. And to the it's to the extent that a lot of video game companies refuse to license their video games to Hollywood mm. just because we don't need you. You're, you're tarnishing our brand every time you fuck up. Uh-huh. And we we're, make we're, more we're money. Not, yeah, we're not making money f- as much money from the movie as we'd like. Yeah, and... like so there, there's not a lot of value in it for video game series anymore. I think that I, what I would like, though, is not so much to validate video games, but I would like Hollywood to do at least one just mm-hmm. just as like an apology <laughs> like just one video game movie that's mm-hmm. legitimately capital G great like just yeah. one well, the dark knight well here's one here's superman the, the movie just one really good one your argument is based on this weird assumption that um you say like everyone in hollywood doesn't understand video games that may be true I'm not necessarily but, saying that's the case. I'm saying there n- has been a of, pattern regardless. Yeah, none of them are setting out – you feel like they're they're not setting out to make a great film. I think they all are. I think, <sighs> yeah, I you think, think Double people, Dragon was trying to win an Oscar. I, I don't think they were trying to win an Oscar, but I think they were trying to make some sort of big animated hit along the lines of, say – uh, something contemporary, like the Ninja Turtles movie, something kind of contemporary with it. Would, fair enough, but at the they same time, they were trying time, to make something a, like a, a fun, colorful adventure film that people would love. And, for a and, lot of, yeah. and, and, and granted, mm-hmm. sometimes that's all the material warrants. On the other mm-hmm. hand, there are sometimes when the material actually could have been better than what you did with it. Yeah, Prince of Persia: Sands of Time is a great I, example of. Didn't this. see the movie. But the, yeah. the video game is an amazingly told mm. story. In addition, to just being a great platformer. Mm. Um, the story elements are only like so much of it. It's actually like almost a short story's worth, but it's easy to adapt into a film. The ending is a classic. Like it's a great mm. movie ending. It could have been great. Mm. And they fucked it up real bad, didn't they? Like well, the, the movie's the, really boring and stupid. And from they what I understand, whitewash the characters. It, it wasn't and the, Gore Verbinski didn't do that one. Did no, it was he? Mike Newell. Mike Newell did the movie? Oh, I know. Okay. And so, like, okay. it looks pretty good. From but, what like, I understand, I yeah, didn't see the work. movie, but all, all of the criticisms I heard were comparisons to uh, the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movie, which is the problem. The same problem John Carter ran into. They tried to make it just as clunky and overblown as that movie because that movie was a big hit. Mm-hmm. They th- and they, they assumed audiences wanted clunky and overblown. They didn't recognize that they're going for the adventure in the characters. Yeah, yeah. well, A, that's the problem. Yeah. The biggest problem is the whitewashing of the characters. The Prince of Persia is played by Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh, golly. Yeah, like, no. Stop that. <laughs> they try to explain it like, oh, he was adopted. Mm. Great. So you're saying the white guy, mm. it's the white savior bullshit. It's yeah, nonsense. Yeah, yeah. But beyond that, even if we go beyond that, they just don't take the story from the game, which mm. was actually a good story. It's not like it needed to be fixed. It was a story that wasn't being told other places. It was very clean. 
Hmm. They just had no respect for it. They just changed it all up arbitrarily. And it's one of those ones where it was just a bad, it was just a bad argu- adaptation. My argument is that it's not arbitrary. It's that they're trying to – they probably looked at the video game story and said, here's why that wouldn't work in a modern film marketplace. And, and they, I they disagree with that entirely. I disagree with yeah. that in this context. I think in that okay. film it would have worked. There's no reason right. – And I think uh, yeah. there there are a lot of games that – yeah, there's like a little a little tiny simple story you could do. Um, if they made like a, a video game movie, like a movie based on The Legend of Zelda. Yeah. Which has been going on for 40 years and has like – gigantic expansive mythologies mm-hmm. could they make a legend of zelda movie for like 30 million dollars where he finds like one treasure in a cave and that's the victory <sighs> that sounds more like, like a art. fan film yeah but it's it's like 90 minutes and it's like really kind of modest we're introduced very slowly mm-hmm. into this world people will be furious and i'll tell you why they, gem because- of the holograms <laughs> because if you because if you promise people we're going to make a Legend of Zelda movie and then they find out you made it for thirty million dollars yeah. and we're only going to see a tiny fraction of the stuff we actually want yeah. from this story yeah people will so, be curious they want exactly. to see what so, they came to see so if they want to if if a studio is going to make a, a Legend of Zelda feature film they have to step up and say okay we're going to make four. And they're going to be $200 million a piece and they're each going to be three hours because now they're under pressure to include this gigantic amount of mythology that the video game series has been laying down for 40 years. And uh, call me pessimistic, I don't think you can get like good films out of that. You might be able to get good fan service out of I, that. I think it can be done, but you're asking a lot. Yeah. I also think that that's not necessarily the best track to take. I think you can totally start mm. with one Zelda movie that's basically done in one, mm. but the way that Zelda is constructed, you can leave it open for and there'll be more later. Yeah. Look at how many Zelda stories are about Z- uh, Link as a kid, and then the second half is Link as an adult. Oh, I, I haven't played those games. So oh yeah, like there's, there's like the uh, link to the what was it? Link to the past. There's no, that's, one. That's the one where he's dreaming the whole game. No, he's not dreaming the whole game. It wasn't a dream. Oh no, not, that that was um, that was Link's awakening. They, they I'm all sorry. they yeah. all awaken. He's all they all start with him waking up in the middle of the night. But mm. uh, <laughs> they do. Uh, no, the, the one for a Nintendo sixty four. I didn't play that one. Uh, it's, yeah, uh, it's, I, it's, I, it was my, great. My my hands on knowledge of video games stops in 1997. I know you have so, trouble with 3D yeah. games, but like. That we need to move on, but like that game was really, really great. The first half of the game is your young Link. You're like a teenage Link, mm-hmm. and you're going around this world of Hyrule, and you meet people, and you get in adventures, and then it looks like you kind of save the day, but then something happens, and then mm-hmm. you awaken ten years later, and you're an adult, and everything has changed. Mm-hmm. Do the first half for the first movie. If it's a hit, you make the second, and you don't need to shoot them at the same time because they're going to recast all the roles anyway. <laughs> so it's fine. Yeah, that one writes it's that's fine. Like one somewhat expensive movie, yes, mm-hmm. but it's only one. Yeah, and if it's not a huge hit, you ended on a bit of a cliffhanger, but mm-hmm. who gives a shit? Yeah, like it's you, you weren't going to finish it anyway, mm. so it's fine. <laughs> Here, here's here's the video game movie I would like to see. Uh, Panos Cosmatos, who did Mandy and Beyond the Black Rainbow. Uh-huh. Have him do Metroid. Why? Because it's like... I, I can see the sort of slow-moving, really weirdly lit, psychedelic science fiction movie where this woman in a like a protective suit, she can't... you know, she, Maybe she's trapped inside of it. Mm-hmm. Has to go down into these caves and encounter these weird monsters. Oh, so you're saying it's a horror movie. Yeah, it's like a horror oh, okay. movie. Okay, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like this little intimate horror movie where somebody's like lost in caves encountering monsters. That'd be cool. I don't need any myth. Yeah. And that's a good Metroid movie in my brain. <laughs> for me, for me, the, ulti- think, the think, ultimate one is Psychonauts. I don't know. Psychonauts, Psychonauts is uh, uh, a kid runs away from the circus so he can go to psychic school. 
Okay. <laughs> and uh, he ends up going to a psych- he ends up going to a summer camp for psychics, where all the little kids are psychics, but uh, they're all like little monsters and like setting things on fire with their brains. Are, and all are, of the are those, teachers like, the are bosses. No, no, the bosses are a lot of the teachers. Oh, okay. So like you, but but the thing is, every level in the game is you go inside someone's mind, and everyone's mind reflects their personality. Oh, oh that's pretty fun. Okay. And so over the course of the game, at first you enter like you know, here's my mind. It's all very well organized. And I teach you how to do things. But as the game goes on, you start entering the minds of other things. There's one point where you enter the mind of a lungfish. All right. And in the mind of a lungfish, it sees humans as these giant monsters. So all of a sudden, you're in Lungfishopolis, this uh, mm. like giant metropolitan city. But you're Godzilla, and you're stepping on all of the lungfish. <laughs> it's really weird. There's one where you go to like a mental institution, and there's a guy who thinks he's Napoleon. And in order to cure his brain, you have to go inside his mind. And kill Napoleon? No, or... you have to beat Napoleon at a game of risk. That's pretty funny. Yeah, mm. these are fun ideas. They're crazy. Like, They're... do that. That's fun and weird. It seems more conducive to like a, a TV series. But yeah, maybe. But I think it could be a fun, like Spy Kids kind of creative movie. Maybe so. You know, uh, here here is a letter from Jonathan. Hello, okay. Jonathan. Hello again. Uh, I knew when I sent. Uh, the- Jonathan has previously sent in their list of the best of the decade. Uh, so I knew when I sent in my best of the decade list, I would get some pushback on some of the choices, particularly Mary Poppins Returns and Frozen 2. Uh, I went that route with my list because... After a while, with best of lists, there can be a lot of sameness of great movies that I also love, but thought listeners don't need to hear more about how great The Social Network is or if Mad Max Fury Road is. I was nervous getting so personal with my picks, but also knew you guys would be very cordial in your remarks, and I appreciate your care in such things. Of course, it also helped that my soul left my body when you guys commented that some of my writing about Inside Out was beautiful. That meant a lot to me (laughs) and made my whole week. I hope your soul re-entered your body and you're not dead. Yes. Uh, Going back to Mary Poppins Returns and Frozen. I do want to clarify a bit more on why I picked them, and uh, that will lead into questions for you two. Got it. First, Frozen, as a franchise, is very important to me because I relate very strongly to the characters, but most importantly, there was a period in my life when I was legitimately thought I might be a sociopath because I couldn't cry at all, but somehow Frozen broke me out of that, and I cry very easily at movies, and it helped me see- seek help with my mental health and my own life. Well, that's great. Yeah, excellent. My question for you is... Are there any movies that had, had had maybe an unexpected impact on you uh, for your everyday life or inspired some kind of personal change? For example, how some people went vegetarian after seeing Okja or any other hmm. similar kind of change. Uh, secondly, Mary Poppins Returns pushes a lot of buttons and tropes that I'm just a sucker for. But on top of that, it also rem- reminds me of a very close friend of mine who had tragically passed away earlier that year. It really exuded her spirit in a lovely way, and I can't separate it from her memory. So my second question is, are there any movies you strongly identify with people from your own life for any reason? Thanks so much for taking the time, Jonathan. Uh, first off, thank you again for writing us yeah, in the first you. place. And uh, I love what you brought up on two different levels. Mm. Um, first off, you talk about how when you were writing your list, you didn't want to include only the films everyone knows about. And that's something that we as critics, people who write these lists, think about sometimes. Because if a, if we read a list of something, what is it really except a list of recommendations? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A list I, I've had editors push back at me, and I, they're they're all for publications I don't work at anymore for a variety of reasons, including <laughs> this one. But uh, I've had editors say like, "No, people read lists so that you validate their opinions." To mm. which I say, "Well, then fuck them." Yeah, <laughs> I'm not here to validate. I'm that. not here. I, I'm not all, here for that. That's all, not my job. First of all, you don't know their opinions. Yeah. You can kind of get a general sense as to popular yeah, opinions. Some stuff but, is yeah. popular. It's fine. But like, but like, that's not the purpose mm. here. If it's nice to have your opinion validated, I'm not going to pretend it's not. 
Yeah, That's yeah. on a personal human level. We all like to have our opinions validated. But a, a, a list of movies from a person who watches movies for a living and has a refined sense of taste shouldn't just be full of stuff that you already know. It should hopefully guide you in interesting directions and towards movies you might not otherwise have seen. Many of the best movies I have ever seen in my life were stuff that I had never heard of until I read a really interesting article in Premiere mm. that listed the best so-and-so films. Yeah, and yeah. that's how I saw, I don't know, The Stuntman, which is one of my favorite oh, movies. Okay. It's a great movie. So I, I agree with that. I'm glad you brought that to light. It's something that you need to find a balance of. You need to mm. make sure that you're not only putting things on the list just to be contrarian. Just yeah. well, you want to be contrarian, maybe, but like just you can't just put them on just because you want to recommend them. They should belong there. Mm. But if your taste is interesting and varied enough, they'll end up on there anyway. Mm. The other thing is uh, when you talk about it's, uh, it's movies the- that changed us and movies that we associate with other people. Mm. These are very personal things. Yeah, yeah. These are very, very, and movies are supposed to connect with you on a personal level. Mm. But yeah, these these are movies have deeply personal connections to us, and sometimes it's even hard to explain. Like, for example, uh, my dad. My dad is no longer with us. My dad died over five years ago now, and I didn't have growing up a lot of really emotional conversations with my dad. Later on, we did, but. Growing up, we did not have that kind of relationship. It was a bit more of a stiff upper lip mm-hmm. kind of I will be a role model kind of relationship. Yeah, yeah. The times that I saw my dad be genuinely emotional, aside from things like maybe Christmas or something, or mm-hmm. were at movies. Okay, and I and he would, but he would cry at the weirdest shit. <laughs> he cried at Armageddon. Armageddon's a bad it's fine but it's kind of a bad movie it's an he emotional cried movie at that. characters die in that movie that, right? yeah. but yeah. he cried when they were just walking in slow-mo to the space shuttle like <laughs> it's just so, like it's so inspiring he was he, he got him right. it got him and they're supposed to get you that's the whole point mm. of the movie it got him it didn't get me I enjoyed it fine when I was mm. a kid and now I find it a cacophony of nonsense but I have a connection to that movie because my dad really liked that movie mm. and it meant a lot to me to see him cry in public mm. He also really, really loved A Night at the Roxbury, which is a stupid movie. And my dad would admit that that was a stupid movie, but it made him laugh. And he loved it. Mm. So those are two movies that I have deeply personal connections with because of my dad. Yeah. What about you? Um, I guess if we're going with my dad, my dad is a big fan of spaghetti westerns, Sergio Leone, movies I hate. And... uh, (laughs) And uh, but you know, as a result, we've we've actually had more conversations about his favorite movies than we have spent watching those movies. I remember mm-hmm. when uh, in the two thousands they re released uh, like an extended cut of the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Oh yeah, which even fans of that movie hate because it's like <laughs> it's already three hours and now it's like three hours and thirty minutes and it didn't need that extra time. No, it really doesn't hurt it too much though. Like it's no, still, no. it's still good. It's not badly but, yeah, paced. We, but we ended we ended up. Uh, going to see that on Father's Day because, of course, they open The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly on Father's Day. Yeah, they know what they're doing. And that led to wonderful conversations about, oh, and there were these two other movies, and then there's this, like, third kind of sequel called A Fistful of Dynamite, a.k.a. Duck, You Sucker. I really like that movie a lot. It, I, it's my favorite of those films. I still haven't seen uh, For a Few Dollars More, but... Um, I, it's not my favorite mm-hmm. at all, but it's good. All right. It's really good. But yeah, we ended up seeing Docu Sucker when it played at the Cinematheque, which was really <laughs> wonderful, and, and we both kind of hated it. So oh. like, kind of, kind of uh, getting together and not liking certain westerns is kind of a, a good bonding experience for me and my father. Interesting. Uh, as for like films that you sort of 
change you a little bit. All of those changes have been for the negative. Um, what? Uh, I, uh, I, when I was a teenager, I thought I was going to be an actor. I was in plays, mm. uh, and I you know, studied acting, and I decided to go to college for acting. Mm. And I went to a college in Tacoma, Washington. And of course, uh, in order to get into certain acting schools, you have to audition. So I auditioned a couple times for a, a couple different theater programs at different colleges. And uh, one of my favorite monologues was taken from the film Twelve Monkeys. <laughs> the 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 there's a monologue that Brad Pitt gives where he's just sort of like showing uh, the Bruce Willis character around the mental institution. Yeah. He's kind of ranting, and I felt oh I can do like that kind of manic thing and then kind of like modulate a lot. I thought it was really going to display my talents, and. Uh, it, it took me a long time to realize that was a bad idea. Mm-hmm. So now I associate uh, 12 Monkeys with my complete and utter failure as a human being. Uh, <laughs> it's not really a lesson learned. It's a lesson learned. You can t- take bad things from movies, too. That's, re- that's, yeah. that's not fair. You shouldn't have that connection. That's not cool. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think if I have anything. Like, I feel like I know if I went back far enough. Mm. There would be movies that taught me things. There's a lot of movies that taught me like little behaviors that I didn't learn to question until much later. Like there's a scene at the beginning of Blade Runner mm-hmm. where uh, Harrison Ford orders noodles mm-hmm. and he splits up his chopsticks and he scrapes them against each other. Okay. And I just started doing that because mm-hmm. if, you know the same thing. There's a little little straight so split, piece of splinters. Wood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scrape them off. Turns out that's not a thing. Turns out, like, in, like, Japan and, like, other countries where they use chopsticks regularly, mm. that's actually apparently not, that's like almost a faux pas, mm. really. Just but apparently a lot of people together. in America do that specifically because they saw Blade Runner. Oh, I, I, th- I thought it was, like, um, just a misunderstanding of the technology. Like, you snap apart two, two sticks. Sometimes there's, like, a little bit of wood and you can kind of, yeah. or, or bamboo and you can pluck it off. But yeah, you don't need to scrape them together to clean them or anything. I read a whole article about yeah. this, about how like that was just created this weird... It's this little tiny thing, but it created this sort of misconception about yeah. what is considered appropriate chopsticks behavior. You know, it's like um, shaking the Polaroid. Yeah, uh, exactly. A Polaroid camera... People probably don't know the Polaroid cameras, but yeah, they were... No, they're still around. They're still around? Okay. Yeah, they're yeah, they're, they're you considered take, cool, you know. You take a Polaroid retro. picture and, yeah, physical picture would print out of the camera right when you took it. And that was a novelty at the time. Ordinarily, you'd have to take a roll of film to uh, the, the film developer, and they give they take yeah. a couple days to actually develop your film, and then you get it back in a little envelope. I miss those days. Yeah. <laughs> of course, now just take pictures. Cats take pictures now, accident <laughs> accidentally. <laughs> uh, but yeah, people would take it out, and they would, and it would take a second to develop. It would come out completely white, and then the f- picture would sort of very slowly fade into being. And mm-hmm. people would assume it was drying. So they would shake it back and forth to sort of facilitate the process. It's covered with a sheet of plastic. Don't pinch the plastic. You might mess up the, like, the emulsion inside. Yeah. Like, so you don't touch it, but it's not because it's wet a lot <laughs> like, of stuff on the like surface. That, a lot of stuff like that. I actually don't know this is true for Polaroid, but a lot mm. of stuff like that is actually sort of encouraged because like, it gives the people – like it feels like so, you're doing something. Something it feels like do, you're yeah. helping. Yeah, yeah, like and like, um, not just sort of sitting there waiting for it to happen. I was hearing the story about um, how cake mix was invented. Like before hmm. cake mix, you had to make everything from scratch. Would, it, it, it's not that hard. But it's not that hard. But you, cake might not, mix, you might not have those ingredients. Cake and... mix made it more convenient, and they had cake mix, and basically that was it. And hmm. the initial dry run of cake mix was a failure, and not because it didn't work; it worked fine. Hmm. But because it seemed so lazy that <laughs> making a cake no longer felt like anything. Mm. So what they did was they removed an ingredient and invited you to crack the eggs yourself. 
So if you so now that you're cracking eggs and you have to whisk it all together, it feels like you're actually baking. It feels like you're doing something, and all of a sudden, it started to sell. (laughs) That's very curious. It's hilarious. People want to feel like we like convenience and technology, but we do like to feel like we're doing something, Mm. and I think that's part of it. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a big reason why people are against self-driving cars. Mm. Like they want to be in control of that car. That's why automat- That's why mm. uh, uh, stick shifts are still popular. Mm. You want to feel like you're directly engaged with every part of the driving process. Oh, absolutely. I, and I learned on a stick, and I drove yeah. a stick for a long time. I still, I still would prefer it if I could get them. I, I, I've never actually like learned. I know the premise. Like I, I'm sure I could figure it out. Like, <laughs> but I've never actually. Oh, like, you could had just a figure stick. it out. No, no. I know it would take me some some mm. time, but like I understand how it works, and I know I could learn if mm. I had to, but. I never had a stick shift, so oh, okay. I've hardly ever really driven one. So, yeah. But, right. yeah. No, I, anyway. I, I learned on a stick. I learned on a manual transmission. It's what I preferred for the longest time. My friends mocked me. <laughs> because I pre- you? Yeah, they made fun of me. It's like, no, now you don't have to do anything. No, I prefer being in control. You just want you just want to do more. You just want to make things harder for yourself because you're dumb. I had the exact opposite yeah. thing. I was told, like, because, well, bear in mind, my dad built motorcycles from scratch. So, oh, oh well, we knew yeah. we were gearheads. So, it was mm-hmm. just like, oh, you don't want to be in control of the car? Mm-hmm. What are you, coward? (laughs) Anyway, let's move on. Uh, Here's a letter from Rainer. Hello, Rainer. Hi. Um, Dear Bibbs and Whitney, greetings from Switzerland. Ooh. If you get this email, you can see that I, too, use my old Hotmail email account. Yay! Uh, We actually have uh, numerous letters from people who still use Hotmail accounts. That's awesome. It's great. It made me happy to hear that I am not the only one. (laughs) We are Legion. (laughs) Already a while ago, you were talking about movies with subtitles, and I wanted to tell you how cinemas in my hometown of Zurich handle it. Cool. Uh, for blockbuster movies, you can generally find two versions, dubbed and OV with subtitles. That's OV, original voice. Mm. Uh, while art house movies are exclusively OV with subtitles. Also, as a multilingual country, you always get German and French subtitles underneath one another. Oh. Th- this, yeah, this is yeah. pretty common. Uh, this means that due to lack of space, the subtitles must change much quicker. Mm. Uh, the first movie I saw with subtitles was Apollo 13. After, after around a half an hour, the movie abruptly stopped due to technical issues, and we had to wait 20 minutes until the issue was fixed and the movie could continue. Uh, th- I only realized the irony of this moment only years later. <laughs> <laughs> Projectionist, we have a problem. That's good. Um, Whitney, what were some of the most memorable issues you had while projecting a movie? Yours, Rainer. Well, as a projectionist, if you have uh, uh, an issue, it's not a, quote, a memorable moment. It's a fucking disaster. <laughs> Something has gone grievously wrong in the projection booth. Um, uh, I work at the New Beverly Cinema as a projectionist, and we deal with a lot of older prints. Uh, we get prints from wherever we can. Uh, it's 35 and 16 millimeter exclusively at that theater. So if we're showing something, uh, if a print was newly struck, great. Uh, new prints are made out of polyester, which means they're a lot thinner and they're a lot harder to break. You got a print made in the 2000s, you can be pretty sure it's going to be pretty easy to run. Problem is, the colors are a lot darker and you can't see cue marks to do changes oh, from one nice. to the other. You can't even, like, put in grease pencil because that just makes it darker. <sighs> the hardest print I ever ran was Saw 5. I buy that. Because it, there was a lot of fast editing and dark scenes, and that's impossible. Uh, yeah. I, I ran the Terminator once, and one of the changeovers was during a car chase at night. Ah. So there's a lot of fast edits, a lot of just sort of blinking white lights in the dark, and you're not going to see a cue mark anywhere in there, and I actually just missed it. I saw oh, wow. neither one. It's like, okay, waiting for it to happen, waiting for it to happen. End of real shit. <laughs> <laughs> You just see, uh, it's like, and then there's no image, so you got to stop the projector, run over to the other one, start up real fast. Ah. 
That that's that's kind of a headache. Um, what is the most memorable? Something that's really fun that happens because you feel kind of, feel kind of like a superhero if you can make it work. Mm. Sometimes the take up reel on the bottom malfunctions, mm. and the film will run through the projector, and people will get the picture and the sound, but the film will start to spill onto the floor. Ah. It's not taking up on the bottom reel. So if you're fast enough, maybe it'll, it'll even snap. The bottom reel is just spinning and the film is spilling under the floor. People in the theater have no idea what's going on. If you're fast enough, you can dive for that pile of fastly accumulating film, run it through your hands, find the end, use your finger real fast to wind it onto the reel and catch up again. <laughs> it's a disaster, but it feels good when you, when, you, when, when you get back on top of it. It's not a good thing that just happened, but when no. you, it's, it's like when you drop something and you catch it again. It's like, ha, I'm fast, but I also dropped it, so I'm a fool. <laughs> and being able to fix something. Being yeah, able I mean, to fix something, because the first time, because we're all taught how to do things. Uh-huh. But when things don't we're go... All, we're all taught how to do no, things. No, but like, that's the thing. We we're all like educated in how to do things, be it run a car, take mm-hmm. care of our aquarium, whatever. It is some technical thing. Mm-hmm. And then... Yeah, eventually it'll break. And the first time it breaks, it's a disaster because you don't know what the fuck. Yeah. And you know what you're doing and you're afraid you're screwing it up. And it's always a problem when it breaks, but after it breaks a few times and you know how to fix it, mm. it feels really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I know how to fix that. <laughs> yeah, I know how to replace well, a carburetor. Of course, after a while, it's just your job. It's like, oh, break and fix. They're done. <laughs> but anything, <laughs> anything can become to, to I'm impressed, thing. though. Like, there's so many things. Like my, like my wife and partner, Michelle, she's not only uh, an author. Got a novel coming out later this year. I'm looking forward to being able to to, plug plug it. Where where will it be available? When when and where? Uh, It's actually part of a series of books that are being published by Unnerving Magazine. Unnerving Magazine. I love it. And they're coming out with a series of books over the whole year. And all of the books are inspired by like 1980s VHS genre cover aesthetics. Ooh, okay. So like you, you would walk into a VHS store and all of the VHS horror movies would promise you something really amazing. Mm. The movie probably wouldn't be that good, but it's all about that making good on that promise. Yeah. So she's got a book that's coming out uh, at the end of October, uh, and it's called Hooker. And it is about a sex worker in the 1980s who becomes a vigilante who with hooks, like as weapons, like a scythe, <laughs> who uh, fights a, a serial killer who has been killing everyone mm. she works with. Um, it's really like it's subversive. It's got a real feminist streak to it. Mm. Um, it's it's really excellent, and I can't wait for everyone to read it. And we need to have her on the show actually uh, pretty soon because she's. In addition to that, she's got a whole bunch of short stories that are being published mm. as well. Um, we we might even have like a reading coming up in Los Angeles once more stuff mm. is like solidified. I want to like have her mm. on and tell people all about it because. A, she's part of the family, but also she's really great, and I want to I want to spread the word. Right, but um, but this relates to fixing stuff. You said oh well because my well I, I really wasn't going to focus on that. And my mm. point is, is that I see her and her technical craft because in addition to being a writer, she's also an artist. She's a painter. She's mm. an illustrator, and I see what she can make out of nothing. And I just I, I just marvel at like <laughs> oh you had a blank page. And then, like, in, in, like, ten minutes, she's got, like, this masterpiece. And you can see, like, on Twitter, she has these fairy tale Tuesdays, where she'll mm. do some incredible piece of art, and you'll look at it, you know, stage by stage. Mm. And I'm just watching, I'm like, how did you do that? Well, and she was well, just like, I worked at it for many, many years, and now I'm really good. And mm. I'm just like, that seems like a lot. I'm never going to do that. Yeah, ex- <laughs> except when somebody says, have a top ten list on my desk by the end of the day, and you do it. 
<laughs> you do the same thing, dude. That's not the same thing. I don't uh, think it's the same thing. Uh, at all. But whatever. It's, I, it's a it's a different discipline, but you can still do the same thing. I suppose it's yeah. its own thing. All right. All right. Um, the, here is a letter from Lady Alana. Hi, children at her feet. Uh, dear Whitney, oh, it's for me. Uh, bringing up Hotmail <laughs> made me check to see if the Hotmail account I set up for my crossdresser identity still exists. Mm. It does. Yes. <laughs> Since I'm writing under my crossdresser ID, I will renew my request that you guys do work it on Cancel Too Soon. There's a lot of objection to the series and uh, the current Tootsie musical on Broadway. I think it's the worst sort of political correctness to insist that you can't even do a crossdressing comedy anymore. As a crossdresser, I have no objection to a crossdressing comedy, though I realize I'm in a different category than a transsexual. It's important to remember that politically correct and politically incorrect are not binary terms, and there's a whole lot of stuff in the middle which is neither. Crossdressers find crossdressing sitcoms like Work It and Ask Harriet, which I'm guessing you've never heard of, to be very, uh, very arousing. So they function. So that they function va- basically as pornography, and I'm sure that's more information than you need. <laughs> This that's is crossdresser Lady that. Alana singing, uh, signing off. Um, I, I don't find that's not yeah. more information than any. I want as yeah. much information as I possibly yeah. can. I'm trying yeah. to remember. I remember when Work It came out, mm. and that's it. I actually totally forgot mm. about it. Let me see here. Had aired two episodes on ABC, and it's about two men who dress up as women in order to keep a job in a bad economy. Well, that's not necessarily the best message, but yeah. Mm. Um, it's it's uh, tricky though because we want to talk um, about uh, serious issues, but sometimes we're not well equipped. Yeah. yeah. So um, thank you for, thank mm. you for your input. Um, and yeah, actually, this is a show that I just plum forgot about. <laughs> to be perfectly <laughs> honest, that, yeah. came out in 2012. It was mm. briefly considered controversial, and then it was canceled so fast, and then that was that. That was that. Yeah. Well, that, that sounds like perfect fodder for cancel too soon yeah now here's a letter from jacques hello jacques uh hi bibs and rockmeister mccool a big fan of your podcast and social media presences thank you uh really appreciate your recent defensive criticism whitney and bibs you are the master of the ama well thank you the american medical association yes Um, i have a genuine question what goes on in an episode of the schmodown I mean, could you help me out? I love you guys, but I don't get it. Is it an intentional joke? I'm not from the U.S., and maybe something is being lost in translation. Is it a satire of something? (laughs) I feel a guide to watching it might help me and other fans follow you to Hugs and Kisses Jacques. Okay, Um, uh, the movie trivia Schmodown, if you're not watching it, it's uh, it's it's, a fun show. It's rare that we have to define it in these terms just because... it was the. This is the pitch yeah. for the Schmodown. Uh, basically, the idea of the movie trivia Schmodown. It's a show that was created by Christian Harloff mm-hmm. and Mark Ellis. Um, Previously, and- of uh, they called themselves the Schmoes. In mm-hmm. that, Joe Schmo is uh, an American colloquialism to refer to an average person. Yeah. Uh, it's usually kind of a pejorative term to refer to an average person. Uh, Joe Schmo on the street wouldn't know. Yeah. Uh, but they decided to sort of pitch um, a show where they were they themselves were the Schmoes. Yeah. So if we're, were gonna have, we're gonna have a Schmoes perspective of yeah. cinema, for example. So yeah, the, no, no no intellect, just the regular person's take on film. And, so they're, they and they're both the Schmoes know. And they're both professional comedians. Mm-hmm. They're funny guys. They're nice guys. Um, and uh, we had a lot of interactions with them over the years, and eventually, over the course of their various uh, shows and productions, they developed uh, a game show, and their game show worked thusly. It was movie trivia questions, not unusual, but they decided that on top of having movie trivia, the contestants would build characters and have drama that took place outside and inside of the ring, if you will, like modern wrestling. Yeah, pro- prof- specifically, 
professional wrestling as it was presented in the 1980s. Christian and now today, but yeah, the flavor's a lot different, but Christian and Mark are, are about our age and they clearly grew up watching wrestling when they were boys. Yeah. Uh, like in probably in the mid eighties, you know, when characters like Hulk Hogan and Andre the giant and Jake, the snake Roberts and the honky tonk man and King Kong Bundy <laughs> were, were big figures in the wrestling world and wrestling had become sort of this big kind of cartoonish Saturday morning fair for little boys. And a lot of and, that, well, and anyone else who wanted to watch it. And, you know, it, I mean, it was, the idea that the idea was the demographic was, was male, little, but it's not exclusively so. Uh, I, I understand, but you know that that's that's kind of the, the vast majority of the people who were watching was like boys under ten. Anyway, so what uh, they, so but, what they did was they mm-hmm. got a whole bunch of people from throughout mm-hmm. the industry. Some of them were actors and performers. If you go back, you'll find like Katie Sackoff from Battlestar Galactica did a few episodes, <laughs> okay. but mostly it's film industry pundits mm-hmm. and writers and other people in the sort of online space and they get themselves a nickname and they do some smack talk and then they build some characters and rivalries between each other Mm -hmm. so that the first chunk of any episode of the movie Trivia Showdown isn't the trivia. Mm -hmm. The first chunk is establishing who everyone is, what their relationships are together. It's them talking shit about each other. Uh, making jokes, maybe doing some sketches where we see them doing weird things behind mm-hmm. the scenes. And then the show actually begins. Everyone has a big entrance. Some are more creative with it than others. And then, unlike wrestling, where the the actual physicality yeah, is ra- real. Yeah, rather than whip off their robes and start grappling in a ring, right. they just sit at a desk and start answering movie questions. But the difference is, wrestling, the physicality is all real. The wrestling is a real, mm. you know, dangerous, impressive physical endeavor, and I will never say an unkind word about that. The actual results of wrestling are scripted. Mm. Because they're trying to tell a story. The and, difference and in the a, movie a lot of the matches are choreographed, but not so carefully choreographed that those those wrestlers aren't making up a lot. Of no, it. no, they're they're creative people. Mm. But the difference is in the movie trivia showdown, the matches are never scripted. Mm. The actual outcome of the match is based on who knows the most mm. movie trivia, and also who knows how to play the game mm. because there's actual rules and whatever. But and so over the years, there's actually been. A lot of really brilliant film critics and film personalities and performers who have joined the show, proven how much they know about movies, mm-hmm. developed fun rivalries with each other. Sometimes that spills out onto social media, and we're all having a good time just talking smack to each other. And yeah, and it just keeps building and growing and growing. And mm-hmm. this season, it's growing quite large, actually. And now everyone's got like an official manager. We had an official draft. <laughs> um, and that's the show. It's not just a movie trivia game show. It is a movie trivia but, game yeah. show with larger than life personalities where we all get to have mm. a really, really good time and do funny scenes. Yeah. It, un- unlocking what it's all about. I encourage you, and I'm sure you can find this uh, probably streaming somewhere, but look up WrestleMania three um, from like around 1989. Yeah. It'll unlock a lot for you. As, as to what's going on in, in the movie trivia showdown yeah. and what it's all about. Um, some people just watch the movie trivia bits. That's fine. But what I found is that if you watch it enough, eventually you'll find that there is a character or an interaction or a dramatic moment mm-hmm. that'll make you want to know what else is going on behind the scenes. And then you're just going to watch them all anyway. And it's just a real <laughs> treat. It's a real treat. Whitney had a really fun match recently uh, with Alonzo Duralde from the mm-hmm. Linoleum Knife podcast. Yeah, we were a t- tag team match. We were deep 13. Yep. Deep 13 versus Paul and Tom, or possibly Tom and Paul, I forget. Uh, But that's a really, really fun match. Lots of great trivia in that match. They're hilarious in that match. So 
if you're new, that's a great match to check out. I highly recommend uh, mm-hmm. you enjoy it. There's Patreon exclusive matches. There are live shows you can go to. It's neat, and we both mm-hmm. have a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. All right, let's uh, do one last letter. One last letter. This is a letter from Jack. Hi, Jack. Hi, Jack. Uh, hi, Bibbs and Wit. First of all, my email address is a Hotmail account. <laughs> we are legion. <laughs> telling you. <laughs> Moving on. There is an important distinction between MST3K mm. and its modern-day YouTube critic equivalents that I think is important to mention. This goes to a letter somebody uh, wrote to us recently about how... Uh, Mystery Science – somebody online actually on Twitter mentioned that Mystery Science Theater 3000 left a bit of a dangerous legacy mm-hmm. because it uh, was teaching younger people how to laugh at films and not engage with films mm. essentially. To which Whitney I and I argued it taught us to engage with them. But, but well, I think also while laughing at them. I think it teaches us to do both. But I think uh, the legacy is the laughing at and not the engaging with. Mm-hmm. That was what somebody argued. I would say it's a little little, little this and that. But this is a letter to that effect. Yeah. Um, the difference between good faith criticism and bad faith criticism and how the former can easily become the latter over time. Something that's very crucial when using the run through an entire movie and point out flaws the whole time method of comedy slash criticism is that the movie has to have flaws for the entire runtime. Otherwise, the video you're trying to make isn't going to work. Hmm. A problem, I believe... That many of these reviewers ran into, uh, the nostalgia critic in around 2012 and Cinema Sins very early on, is that they ran out of flat-out, bad, quote, bad movies, so they had to resort to talking about either movies that were just okay or movies that were generally quite good. This yeah. is especially a problem when you've built your business model off of pointing out flaws in movies. And, and an important facet of getting people to click on your videos is reviewing whatever is popular at the moment, You're not trying to, and you're trying to put out at least one video a week. Thus, one extremely disingenuous thing that CinemaSins does, and one reason in particular why I can't stand their videos, is that they will intentionally, deceptively edit or leave out parts of movies they're, quote, reviewing to make it look like the movies did something wrong when, in fact, they did not. Uh, the other huge problem uh, that making a series like CinemaSins ubiqu- uh, like Cinema ubiquitous creates is that viewers will use their videos as substitutes for actually watching the movie. Yeah, that's my concern, too. Yeah, leaving people with grossly inaccurate ideas of what films are like. Yeah. What's more, it's like reading the Cliff's Notes. Yes. You'll know the story beats, but you won't know whether or not you love that book. Oh, well, yeah. A movie yeah. is more than just yeah. story beats. Otherwise, yeah. we wouldn't need a movie. We'd just give just you a tell list the story, of stuff that yeah. happened. We'd still be bards around the campfire. What's more, I do agree with you that being steeped in a culture that focuses on nitpicking rather than genuine criticism probably won't lead anywhere good, and I have to wonder if the people who make nitpicky YouTube reviews might start from a place of good faith, but actually end up losing that due to the nature of the videos they're making, thus turning them to people who go into movies looking to find fault with them, rather than attempting to enjoy the experiences of watching them. As for how much CinemaSins should be considered, and this is in multiple quotation marks, satire of nitpicky criticism, there's considerable evidence to suggest that the people behind it do genuinely, genuinely believe a lot of the, quote, criticisms they make, and they may in fact be complete assholes in real life. <laughs> um, note, I did, uh, I did crib a bit of this email from a video called Sustaining Stupidity, Why CinemaSins is Terrible, <laughs> okay. which is fantastic and you should watch. Um, uh, if good, I don't think good faith criticism leads to bad faith nitpicking. I think it's the uh, other way around. Mm, you think, I think nitpicking leads to good faith? I, th- I think yes. I think people go into movies, they see these videos online like The Nostalgia Critic or like uh, Cinema Sins, and I think that's teaching them to look at films a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I think they begin engaging on films in a bad sort of way. I remember seeing a review of... Uh, 
the film The Visit, the M. Night Shyamalan film. Yeah. Which I like. It's I like The film. Visit a lot. Yeah. Uh, I think the kids are really great. I think it's a good twist. I think it's genuinely scary. I think it's a good film all around. Yeah. Uh, clearly the person who made this video was going in to make a bit. And they made this like really sort of sour, cranky review where they just sort of like yelled about all these plot points and how certain things didn't work. Uh, and this was like right after they had gone to to a screening. This was before the film had even opened. So I think someone like that is going into something like The Visit looking for a bit. And they're, and they're not really open to sort of seeing the film the way it's presented to them. Bad faith criticism. Mm-hmm. I think that can only take you so far. And I don't think people will stay on that note very long. Maybe their entire 20s. Who's to say? <laughs> but I think in being encouraged to look at the details of a film, eventually they'll start to see better details. And I think that kind of just going into criticism at the very first in this bad faith sort of way, just to find nitpicks, isn't the kind of thing that you're going to sustain indefinitely. I think it's the kind of thing that is actually maybe on the long run, but eventually teach you to look at films in a critical, critical sort of way. I, I disagree with that for this reason. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I think on an individual level, mm-hmm. if you start nitpicking movies, but you're actually just really closely reading them, eventually you'll realize that a lot of the things that we worry about aren't necessarily a problem with the film. Mm-hmm. Every film has some kind of flaw, lapse in logic, continuity or something, and it's really not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they are. Usually they're not. Yeah. Uh, but for you say that it'll lead to this palace of wisdom down in the future, but branding prevents that kind of change. So oh, well, Cinema Sins, for example, hmm. and I think our, our person, and again, I don't know how much of it is, is them or the hmm. video they said they were talking about, uh, but the problem with something like Cinema Sins, for example, hmm. is that they have a very specifically codified format and they need to keep putting it out. Yeah. All the time, and as a result, they have to put it out, and it needs to apply to everything. And just mm. a simple list of all of the flaws with something implies that everything is equally flawed, and that's yeah. not necessarily true. I do believe that every movie, TV show, whatever, there's valid criticism out there somewhere. Mm. But if you apply the same standard to all of them, then you're missing mm. a lot of uh, well, nuance. I, I, Whereas something like, for example... Honest trailers, hmm. where it's the the format is more flexible and it's less so much about criticism, it's about making funny observations and hmm. talking about patterns and filmmaking or whatever like that. That's relatively okay. Or how it should have ended is pretty hmm. good because they're not so much talking about flaws as in what ifs. Mm-hmm. Like, what if it ended this way? Wouldn't that be funny? And occasionally they make an observation about a plot hole, but mm-hmm. usually it's just, wouldn't it be hilarious if yeah. in Wonder Woman, Wolverine showed up? Like, <laughs> he was in World War One as well, right? Uh, yes, that's oh, kind that, of yeah, funny. Sure, like, that's, fine, he's that, there. That's, that, that yeah. is pure satire. That mm-hmm. is is genuine silliness. Also, but with that's, the a, that's Sins, an animated program. Right? It is an animated yeah. program. The thing with CinemaSins, though, is that by applying the same critical standard, this nitpicky critical standard mm-hmm. to everything, it it, over time, creates the illusion that that is indeed universal and and mm. a reasonable way to approach all cinema yeah. is well, to I, just I, collect negative I guess, uh, thoughts. I, I didn't take into consideration that Cinema Sins has been around for a while. It's kind of an institution. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm talking about like. 
people who are like the viewers. Yeah. The people are viewing that and I think viewing things like that can actually teach you how to engage with a film critically, even if it's really sour at first. Mm-hmm. Um I've seen a few cinema sins. I'm not I haven't followed them. I don't know sort mm. of their arc. I don't know how long they've been around. I watched a I watched a c I've watched like three or four of their videos. And you know, some of their their sins is like, oh, and he's wearing a dumb orange hat. Ding, that's something that's that's wrong with the movie. It's like, uh-huh. well, that's not like a legitimate complaint. That's which clearly is, a joke. That's clearly a joke, yeah. and that, that's that's what leads me to describe Cinema Sins as a work of satire, because I always assumed that they were making fun of a certain type of film punditry. Yeah. That uh that focused on little tiny flaws. But now that it's it become out, the institution, yeah, all no, they're doing no. is is supporting that kind yeah, of punditry. So so I, I assume they were kind of mocking the punditry when really they might just be those types of pundits. There's a, there's a, there's a problem here where we have to sort of criticize the mm. content of something, but sometimes you also need to take into consideration its place in the firmament and mm. how there may, or may or may not be a problem with mm. it in and of itself, but it may be a problem in the yeah. overall arc. Like when you look at like movies that support like really shitty tropes, mm. like one, you can make an excuse. Okay, well, one movie did it. Yeah, you know it's not the worst thing in the world, but when it's one of a million of them and it's only the latest, it's getting to the point where like, okay, listen, mm. whether or not this movie gets away with it, that's worth criticizing, and that's something mm. that I think we need to talk about. I also think a lot of the the, the online shows that mm. are based on sort of you know poking fun a little bit, a lot of it's tone. Cinema sins. <laughs> it's called sins. Like it's it's basically just like look at that problem. Look at that problem. Look at mm. that problem. Yeah. But some people actually are really, really good at keeping a pretty positive tone, even when they're poking fun. A really good example, and one of my favorite online shows, is Alison Pregler's Baywatching. Okay. <laughs> where she's going through every single episode of Baywatch, and she's, like, trimming it down to, like, a lean eight minutes, and mm-hmm. she's telling you what happens in it, why it's funny, what's ridiculous about this, how this, like, this contradicts an episode that'll happen a hundred episodes later, and that's really, really fun, and we're engaging with the silliness of Baywatch, but the love of Baywatch mm-hmm. is in is unmistakable in every single episode. So even though, yeah, we're making fun of how stupid Baywatch is, mm-hmm. we love Baywatch. That's why we're watching this. <laughs> so I don't actually even watch Baywatch. I just love Baywatching. <laughs> I don't need to see Baywatch. I'm fine with just, I'm not, unless I have to write critically about it. I, I mean, I wouldn't just from based on watching Baywatching, but like, yeah, I can just watch Baywatching and it's a hoot. Mm. So I think a lot of it is tone. I think a lot of it is how seriously you take yourself and how seriously you allow people to take you. Yeah, is another thing here, and it's one thing to just say we're satire. That's, that's an excellent point, actually. Yeah, yeah. because if, if you understand that, if you think you're doing a work of satire yeah. at first, and you realize people are latching on to uh, launching onto that as a not not as a piece of satire, uh-huh. then you either have to roll with it or back off. Yep. And if you roll with it, then you have changed the tone of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Or you should, yeah. anyway. You should all yeah. of a sudden, oh, people are taking it's this like, seriously? Now I actually have a requirement to take the, this seriously because uh, I have a responsibility. It's the Tommy Wiseau thing. Yeah. It's like, I, I made this very serious drama. Really? We're going to see it because it's a dumb comedy. Then it was a dumb comedy all along. But Tommy Wiseau changed his tune a couple times on The Room. Yes, he did. Yeah. It's like, yeah. oh, I'm glad you're here. Oh, this is a silly movie. Thanks for coming to see my weird satire comedy. That was, was not a comedy that film. Was, that was entirely genuine, and I think it's interesting. Yeah. I actually think it's interesting. I mean, it's not accomplished or, or competent, but I actually or, think it's an interesting work of art, The Room. <laughs> 
It's interesting. I, I don't think it's good in any conventional sense, no. but it's, it feels genuine. It feels like a real expression of pain and loneliness from someone who doesn't understand no. the craft. Here's, here's the weird thing. I don't think the room is fun. A lot of people no, go to depressing. see this ridiculous film. It's, yeah, it's, it's about a guy of, who feels like everyone betrays yeah, him and he's all alone even though he's just trying to be a nice guy. And then he kills himself. It's, That's a sad it's movie. It's strange and depressing and yet people like are like, yeah, let's go drink and watch this awful drama. Like, he's, he's burying his soul inarticulately, but by God he is burying his soul. It's so disrespectful. <laughs> It's like uh, it's one thing to like make fun of Manos, the Hands of Fate, because they were they were trying to make a bad movie. I mean, they were trying to make a movie that they thought would work, mm. but it's a movie about people who get confused at the gates of hell and think it's a and think it's a, a hotel. <laughs> That's a stupid movie. Yeah, it's not like it's not really deeply personal or anything like that. It's just kind of a weird genre flick. <laughs> the Room was supposed to be a deeply personal thing. Mm. I feel bad for Tommy Wiseau sometimes. He's he's made it work for him. Like I, I'll, I actually respect him for how he's been able to like make that thing work. But mm. yeah. anyway, that is we've got mail. Thank you everybody for listening to we've got mail. Especially thank you everybody who wrote into we've got mail. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you want to write into we've got mail, you can write us letters at critically acclaimed dot net. You can also keep the show running if you have the means and want to help support us uh, by going to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We have a ton of exclusive shows, including all our yesterdays, where we review every single episode of Star Trek in production order. We have only the best, where we review every single nominee for best picture in chronological order. We have an episode we're going to be recording real soon about that. Yes. We have commentary tracks. Next one's going to be for Citizen Kane, Mm -hmm. because you demanded it. Uh, we have uh, TV movie reviews, Google Hangouts, ton of cool stuff over there. Uh, and if you can't afford to support us on Patreon, we totally get it. Times are hard. But leave us a review wherever you find the show. That really helps mm. a lot. Spread, spread word, retweet, yeah. That, yeah. just the usual stuff. That really, really helps. Yeah. And uh, we, we certainly would appreciate it if you did. You can find us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And uh, sincerely yours, us.